Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, Judges chapters 7 and 8. According to Judges chapter 7, verse 4, the Lord says that the Shophet Gideon had too many troops at his disposal to fight against the invading Midianites and Amalekites. And this was after he had already dismissed about two-thirds of the Israelite soldiers to go home. But in the second round of cutdowns, that number of soldiers was further reduced to only 300 men or only about 1% of all the Israelite tribesmen who had answered Gideon's call to holy war. Now what makes this puny number all the more astounding is that the size of the forces they were going to face was about 135,000. A ratio of more than 400 Midianites to every Israelite soldier. Now, the reality is that probably of that 135,000, something around an additional 100,000 were women and children. Because that's how the nomadic armies from the eastern desert regions traveled and fought. Their families went with them. All right? And they all moved around as a cohesive group. These were nomads. Okay? Why would the Lord insist on this seemingly outlandish tactic? Verse 2 says, There are too many people with you for me to hand over Midian, hand Midian over to them because, because I don't want Israel to be able to boast against me. We saved ourselves by our own strength. The Lord wanted to make this idolatrous generation of Israel acutely aware that he's still there, he's still watching, He's still acting, and he's still saving. He's still Israelite's God. He still loves Israel, despite their unfaithfulness towards him. And there is no other like him. That Gideon obeyed God on this, even though we find that he is certainly skeptical about it all, should be seen as to his merit. Now, when we step out of our comfort zones at the leading of the Lord he doesn't expect us to remain comfortable that's the whole point if it wasn't uncomfortable then we've merely stepped from one comfort zone into another the idea is that we do uncomfortable things in faith so don't ever think that you aren't demonstrating sufficient faith when facing a grueling challenge and you have fears and worries along the way. Ask any soldier who has ever been in combat if they were afraid. And they'll tell you, absolutely. The issue is controlling that fear and still functioning. It's not dismissing it. Even so... Gideon would have to appear 
sure and confident among his men. Nothing frightens troops more than a wavering leader. Let's pick up this story at verse 7. Judges 7, verse 7, which starts on page 279 of your complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Gideon, I will use the 300 men who lapped the water to save you. I will hand Midian over to you. Let all these others go back home. So they took the provisions and the shofars of the people. Then he sent all the men of Israel away, each to his tent, but the 300 men he kept. The camp of Midian was in the valley below him. And that night Adonai said to him, Get up, attack the camp, because I've handed it over to you. But if you're afraid to attack, go down with your servant Purah. And after you hear what they're saying, you will have the courage to attack the camp. So with his servant Purah, he went down to the outposts of the camp. Now Midian, Amalek, and the others from the east had settled in the valley as thick as locusts. Their camels, too, were beyond counting, like the sand on the seashore. Gideon got there just as a man was telling his comrade about a dream he had had. I just now dreamt that a loaf of barley bread fell into the camp of Midian, came to the tent, and struck it so hard that it overturned the tent and knocked it flat. And his comrade answered, This can only be the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all of its army into his hands. Well, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he fell on his knees in worship. Then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Get up, because Adonai has handed Midian's army over to you. Now he divided the 300 men into three companies. He put into the hands of all of them shofars and empty pitchers with torches in them. And he said to them, Watch me and do what I do. When I get to the edge of the camp, whatever I do, you do the same. When I and everyone with me blow the shofar, then you blow your shofars all around the whole camp and shout, For Adonai and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him arrived at the edge of the camp a little before midnight and just after uh, they had changed the guard. They blew the shofars and broke in pieces the pitchers that were in their hands. All three companies blew their shofars, broke the pitchers, held the torches in their left hands, keeping their right hands free for the shofars they were blowing. And they shouted, The sword for Adonai and for Gideon. Then as every man stood still in place around camp, The whole camp was thrown into panic, and everyone screaming and trying to escape. Gideon's men blew their 300 shofars, and Adonai caused everyone in the camp to attack his comrades. And the enemy fled beyond Beit Shittah near Zerirah, as far as the border of Avel Mochlah by Tabat. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali Asher in both regions of Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hills of Ephraim with the message, Come down and attack Midian and capture the rivers before they get there, as far as Beit, Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim came together and seized the rivers as far as Beit, Barah, and the Jordan. They also captured two chiefs of Midian, Orev and Zeev. They put Orev to death at the rock at Orev and Zeev at Zeev's winepress. Then as they kept pursuing Midian... They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeph to Gideon, who had crossed to the far side of the Jordan. Well, it seems that the nervous Gideon needs yet another sign. And the Lord was merciful to provide it, since obviously he knew every thought that Gideon harbored deep within. 
So Jehovah tells Gideon that if he's still concerned about what lay ahead, he should take a man named Purah with him, sneak down the hillside below where the enemy was camped and listen to what they were saying. Well, we're told that they went to the outermost area of the Midianite camp. This was where a guard of watchmen would have been set up because surely the enemy was aware of the thousands of Israelite troops that had come to aid Gideon and they knew something was up. And what Gideon overheard was one guard talking to another, telling him about a dream he had. And in this era, dreams were considered very important. They were taken seriously. And the Midianite soldier says that he dreamed that a barley cake fell into the midst of their encampment and hit his tent with such force that it fell down. And the other Midianite soldier interpreted the dream as meaning that the Gideon-led Israelites were about to attack in the name of the God of Israel and that Israel would prevail. Now, why would the soldier interpret that dream in such a fatalistic manner And why does he see Israel as being symbolized by the barley cake? Now, first, as I said, they were all aware of the many thousands of Israelite tribesmen who had originally answered the call of Gideon. It says that around 32,000 came. Now, if the biblical numbers are accurate, that meant that there was around a four-to-one advantage at that point for Midian but that they still didn't seem to be that still didn't seem to be very comforting to the Midianite soldiers. Second, barley was in that era used to make the bread of poor people. Okay. Barley was much less desired than wheat for making bread. And if you've ever tried barley bread, you'd know why. Now, yet of course, much barley was used simply due to the realities of the growing seasons. Barley naturally ripens in late winter to early spring, and wheat was a summer crop. Barley is at times used to symbolize Israel in the Bible. And in this particular case, notice what season the nomads came. We're told back in Judges 6.11 that the Malach Yehovah, the angel of the Lord, first commissioned Gideon when Gideon was doing what? Threshing wheat in a wine press. Okay. They came to confiscate the wheat harvest, not the barley harvest. Okay. Now, even though most Bibles say that it was a barley cake that stumbled into the camp, that's just a poor translation left over from the King James Bible uh, era. The Hebrew word being translated is selil, selil. And selil means a round or circular loaf. And it's also kind of a slang that they used that meant rolling. Round, rolling. It's the shape of Bedouin bread that's cooked not on a square baked loaf, but it's cooked as a flat bread on a griddle. Looks a lot like our pita bread. See, this is a word play that works with the Hebrew word hafak, that's properly translated as tumbled. So we have a rolling or round batch of barley rolling down and tumbling down into a tent. 
In any case, when Gideon heard this, it greatly strengthened him. And he fell on his knees in both relief and worship. Kind of like when we get that biopsy back from the doctor and it turns out that the tumor is benign. Now he was ready to stake his life on the word of God. So he told his men to arise for the moment had come that the Lord would deliver Israel from the hand of their cruel oppressor. Well, it was nighttime, and a surprise attack was planned. And we see throughout the Bible Israel using deception and the dark hours to gain an advantage over the enemy in wartime. Gideon's strategy was to divide his troops into three groups of 100 men each. And now we find out why Gideon had those Israelites who had been dismissed and sent home to leave their shofars behind. Because every one of his 300 men was now armed with one. It was, of course, not usual that every man would have a shofar. Usually it was only the leaders. Each man was also given a torch and a clay pot of some kind that they could hold over that torch so that it would conceal its light. And they moved into positions all around the Midianite encampment. Gideon tells his men there to follow his lead. And when he sounds the shofar, they are to suddenly and in unison begin to blow theirs. And after blowing the shofars for a few minutes, they're to shout the words for Yehovah and for Gideon. Why those words? Because it fulfilled the dream of that soldier using his own words. The implication is that the Lord God supernaturally implanted this dream in the Midianite soldier. Not an unusual thing, by the way. Stressing a principle that's often overlooked. It is that despite the completely scripturally unfounded saying that we within the church, that the Lord will never override a man's will. In fact, he did so regularly. And we've seen it in numerous stories from the Torah, including the Pharaoh of Egypt and uh, Bilam the sorcerer. This is a dream that the soldier would have shared among his fellows, who would have shared it among their own fellows, and so on. Hey, listen, scuttlebutt moves rapidly among troops and that was part of God's plan well beginning in verse 19 the attack is launched in earnest at the start of the middle watch meaning 10-ish at night and the whole camp soldiers their wives children would have been asleep for a while and only the sentries were left to fend for the camp At the same moment Gideon and his men blew those horns, they broke the clay covers over their torches, held them up high in their left hand, leaving their right hand free to hold their shofars and continue to blow them. I can't even imagine the racket and the confusion it would have caused. I mean, can you picture being in a deep slumber from a hard day when suddenly this shattering din of 300 shofars interrupts the quiet desert night and startles you awake. 
and you look out of your tent, and in that pitch black darkness, you see hundreds of torches all around you, obviously belonging to the enemy. You're surrounded. And the last thing you knew, 32,000 Israelite soldiers had arrived for battle. You see, up to this point, Gideon's 300 men hadn't even drawn their swords. In fact, both hands were busy. One hand with a torch, other hand with a shofar. They simply scared their enemy into panic. Verse 21 says that every man, every Israelite, just stood in his place. And from there they watched as men grabbed up their wives and children and started running for their lives. The camels would have stampeded. Some of the soldiers began lashing out at the dark at any silhouette that moved, killing countless numbers of their own, certain that the hordes of Israelite fighters had descended upon them. These human locusts took flight. And instinctively, they began to race back towards where they had come from, across the Jordan. All three towns mentioned in verse 24 as their exit route were in the general area called Jabesh Gilead. Now, let's stop for a minute and just forget that we're reading Scripture and focus instead on the tale. These nomads that were fleeing were real people responding to a dangerously real situation. They reacted just like people from any society in any era would react. The same went for the Israelites. You don't keep the existence and whereabouts of 32,000 Israelites or a quarter of a million Nomadic invaders' secret. The Hebrew and the Canaanite, for that matter, inhabitants of the hill countries, to the, to, to the north and the south of the Jezreel Valley, where all this was taking place, had been carefully watching this situation because they knew that in one way or another they were going to be affected by its outcome. Unlike we moderns that sleep soundly because we trust our police and our military to protect us, no such condition or thought existed in that day. Tribal and clan leaders watched over their territories 24-7 with a jealous and wary eye. And that watchfulness was not only for foreign enemies, but also for their own brethren from other clans and tribes who often sought to take advantage of a situation for their own benefit. The initial summons by Gideon to holy war was to Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Even though they were dismissed, now they were recalled. In verse 23, the flight of the enemy led to a general call of Israel to arms. And as one can imagine, everybody loves to join in a rout and take some credit and some vengeful enjoyment from it all. 
So Hebrews from several of the tribes started pouring out of the woodwork. But by now, another tribe was specifically solicited to join into the action. Ephraim. Partly this was due to the path that the fleeing Midianites would have taken through Ephraim's territory as they attempted to get back home in safety. But it was also due to Ephraim's great status at that time. The men of Ephraim were prepared and ready to pounce at a moment's notice because they had been observing. So they took up positions along the many tributaries and forks of the Jordan River at the fording points in order to keep rather in order to intercept those marauders from the east and trap them. Two of the key Midianite leaders were captured, Orev and Ziev, and only their lifeless heads were turned over to Gideon. Notice the names attributed to the two places where these men were executed. The Rock of Orev and the Winepress of Ziev. Probably these two places had no recognized names before these events. But then, of course, later they were referred to by the actions that took place there. Those executions of those two great Midianite leaders. So many place names in the Bible happened in exactly that way. By the way, often replacing an earlier place name. Let's move on to chapter 8 because the saga continues there. Judges chapter 8. But the men of Ephraim complained to Gideon. Why didn't you call on us when you went to fight Midian? Why do you treat us this way? They were sharp in their criticism. And he answered them by saying, How can what I have done be compared with what you have done? Aren't the grapes that Ephraim leaves on their vines better than the ones that Aviezer harvests? God handed over to you Midian's chiefs, Oreb and Zeb. What could I do that matches what you did? By saying that, he appeased their anger at him. By now, Gideon and his 300 men had come to the Jordan and crossed over. They were exhausted, but were still pursuing the enemy. In Sukkot, he asked the people there, Please, give some loaves of bread to the men following me, because they're exhausted. And I am pursuing Zavok and Zalmunah, the kings of Midian. But the chiefs of Sukkot said, You haven't captured Zavok and Zalmunah yet, so why should we give bread to your army? And Gideon said, If that's your answer, then after Adonai has put Zavok and Zalmunah in my hands, I'm going to tear your flesh apart with desert thorns and thistles. And from there he went up to Penuel and made the same request, and the people of Penuel gave the same answer as those of Sukkot. So he answered the people of Penuel similarly. When I return safe and sound, I will break down this tower. Now Zevah and Zalmunah were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all that remained of the entire army of the people of the east, since 120,000 arms-bearing soldiers had fallen. Gideon went up, using the route of the nomads east of Novak and Yogbeha, and struck down the army when they thought they were safe. Zavok and Zalmunah fled, but Gideon pursued them. Thus he captured the two kings of Midian, Zavok and Zalmunah, and routed their whole army in panic. 
When Gideon the son of Uash returned from the battle by the way of Hares, by, of the Hares Pass, he captured a young man from Sukkot and asked him about the chiefs and leaders of Sukkot, and he wrote down for him the names of 77 of them. Then he came to the people of Sukkot and said, You insulted me when you said you haven't captured Zavok and Zalmunna yet, so why should we give bread to your exhausted men? Well, here are Zavok and Zalmunna. And he took the leaders of the city and desert thorns and thistles and used them to teach the people of Sukkot a lesson. He also broke down the tower of Penuel and put the men of that city to death. Then he said to Zavok and Zalmunna, Tell me about the men you killed at Tabor. And they answered, Well, they looked like you, like the king's sons. And Gideon replied, They were my brothers, my mother's sons. As surely as Adonai is alive, I swear that if you had spared them, I would not kill you. Then he ordered his oldest son, Yeter, Get up! kill them but the boy didn't draw his swords being still a boy he was afraid then Zavok and Zalmunna said you do it you kill us let a grown man do what takes a grown man's strength so Gideon got up and killed Zavok and Zalmunna then he took the ornamental crescents from around their camels necks the men of Israel said to Gideon rule over us you, your son, and your grandson, because you saved us from the power of Midian. But Gideon replied, Neither I nor my son will rule over you. Adonai will rule over you. Then he added, But I do have this request to make of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from the booty you have taken. For the enemy soldiers had worn gold earrings, like all the other tribes descended from Ishmael. They replied, We're glad to give them to you. And they spread out a robe, and each man threw in the earrings from his booty. The gold earrings he requested weighed more than 42 pounds. And that didn't include the crescents, pendants, and purple cloth worn by the kings of Midian and the chains around their camels' necks. Out of these things, Gideon made a ritual vest, which he located in his city, Ophrah. But all Israel turned it into an idol there. And thus, it became a snare to Gideon and his family. This is how Midian was defeated by Israel so that they ceased to be a threat. The land had rest 40 years during the lifetime of Gideon. Yerubael, the son of Yoash, returned to his home and stayed there. Now, Gideon became the father of 70 sons because he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem, and she too bore him a son whom he called Abimelech. Gideon, the son of Yoash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Yoash in Ophrah of the Aviesri. But as soon as Gideon was dead, the people of Israel again went astray after the Baals and made Baal Berit their god. They forgot Adonai their god, who had saved them from the power of all their enemies on every side. And they showed no kindness towards the family of Yerubael, that is, Gideon, to repay them for all the good he had done for Israel. The tribe of Ephraim enjoyed a status of supremacy 
over all the other tribes of Israel at this, at least the more northern tribes. Now, by the way, notice again how we don't see any mention in this tale of the southern tribes of Judah and Simeon. See, all this stemmed from the fact that Joshua was an Ephraimite and that Ephraim had been given that special birthright privileges not only over his older brother Manasseh, but even over his uncle Reuben. As was Jacob's deathbed blessing back in Egypt, more than a hope and a dying man's wish, Ephraim indeed was fulfilling that Genesis 49 prophecy that Joseph, his father, would become very fruitful. Ephraim controlled fertile fields, lush hills, and had grown large and powerful. Other tribes deferred to them. And Gideon, being of the tribe of Manasseh, did the same. So in verse 1, we have the leaders of Ephraim come to Gideon with a complaint. Why didn't you call on us and what, when you went up to fight Midian? Yeah, right. As though Ephraim had no idea any of this was going on. Here was Gideon, God's anointed Shophet, who had just risked everything to rid the land of these invaders, and the leaders of Ephraim are upset because Gideon broke protocol in their eyes. Again, it's good to kind of forget that we're studying Scripture because too often we lose sight that we're dealing with real people in real situations, and they responded in ways completely customary for their particular culture in their era. Ephraim was the big dog in Canaan at this moment. And the leaders of Ephraim expected to not only be personally consulted before any grand undertakings near their territory, but also to be allowed to have their place at the head of the line when it came time for the things that automatically result from victory. Shiloh and Bethel were undoubtedly two of the most revered and hallowed places for all of Israel. And they were in Ephraim's territory. So even the religious centers for all Israel bore Ephraim's mark. But there was an even baser reason for Ephraim's sharp rebuke of Gideon. 135,000 enemy soldiers plus their families leave a lot of spoils of war behind when they flee. And more is acquired when they're captured. Understand, robbery, kidnapping, victory in battle, and projection of power were usually the methods used in tribal societies to gain wealth and authority. It was always a zero-sum game. One tribe gained because they took it from another. It was a transfer of wealth. Back and forth it went over the centuries. As some tribes became more settled and became stable nations, as Israel's in the process of doing, they became less predatory among each other and more interested in producing than pilfering. But other societies of the Middle and Far East remained nomads, and thus they behaved 
as the figurative term locusts suggests. Gideon proves to be a very wise man. And he, pro- he, he responds to, Ephraim, uh, to the Ephraimite leader's accusations with a very soft and diplomatic response. He uses a typical farm metaphor to curry favor. And he says, he says it this way. He says that the leftover grapes on the vines of Ephraim are better than the best crops of Aviezer. Aviezer is Gideon's clan. He's saying that even though it might seem that the full harvest of Gideon's victory over Midian without the help of Ephraim is greater. In fact, the mop-up operations, the seeming gleanings or the leftovers of the harvest of Ephraim were the most important thing. And full and complete victory was impossible without it. The part played by Ephraim, though not so spectacular and widely known as the prying battle that had been led by Gideon, was the real reason for ultimate success, Gideon says. We're witnessing some major sucking up here. In Middle Eastern style. Essentially, Gideon was helping Ephraim save face. And thus avert a serious insult that most assuredly would have led to intertribal warfare. Gideon reminds Ephraim that it was they who had the glory of capturing and executing those two key leaders of the Midianites, Orev and Zeev. It worked. Ephraim was given their pound of flesh and undoubtedly many pounds of gold and silver. And Gideon publicly submitted to them. So Ephraim didn't have their status challenged, and so they calmed down. Interestingly, a few years, a few chapters from now, this same problem with Ephraim getting their uppity feelings hurt ended up in far more tragic consequences. Well, beginning in verse 4, we find Gideon and his band of 300 giving chase to the fleeing nomads. Gideon was doing as exactly it was doing exactly as he should have. He was doing what Joshua and Joshua's successors failed to do. Take the battle all the way to the enemy's front door if necessary and don't quit until the enemy is eradicated. You know, it's an odd thing among we Christians. We talk and we speak glowingly of when the Messiah will return and evil will end. It's as though this is all going to be some relatively painless, humane, and sanitary event. So the discussion of evil among Christians usually winds up in people talking about he who is without sin throw the first stone. Or some other misplaced platitude that essentially relegates evil from its reality to some wispy theory and not what it actually is. You know, one of the reasons that the Old Testament is often detested is that some see it as all about a bloodthirsty God who orders his followers to carry out a process of bringing evil to justice in a very final and harsh way. 
But somehow, at times, we just can't seem to grasp that evil is only present in two and active in two forms. In spiritual beings and in human beings. Evil isn't a thing that stands by itself, nor is it something that can be bottled and placed in a museum for study. Evil only exists within beings who have wills. Trees and oceans aren't evil. Exploding stars and meteors that strike the earth aren't evil. Dinosaurs weren't evil and neither were fiery volcanoes. Hurricanes and tornadoes, forest fires, flooding rains, none of these things have any element of evil in them. Lions and bears, they're not evil. You see, on the earthly side, only men are evil. And on the spiritual side, only Satan and his demons are evil. What I'm getting at is that the eradication of evil by definition means the eradication of evil people. And eventually the eradication of the spiritual evil one. But understand, if Satan died today, humans would still carry with us an evil inclination. And we'd still do evil things. Thus the Lord will at Armageddon wipe out all evil human beings and then at the end of it lock away the chief evil spirit being even then with no Satan to attempt or accuse over the thousand year reign of Messiah some men will give in to evil Because they still have, we still will have the vestiges of evil inclination remaining in corrupt bodies. Not until we receive new bodies to go along with our new spirits will the evil that dwells in humanity finally and fully be eradicated. Throughout the Torah, Yehovah has defined for us what it is that makes people evil. And it's all, of course, wrapped up in what they are, whom they worship, and how they behave. So the next time you ponder why a Messiah was needed, remember what evil is and where it exists. And the next time you think about the horror of a lawful execution or the violent deaths of Islamic jihadists, or police shooting and killing a dangerous person, remember that what is being dealt with is evil in the only physical form it exists, in humans. And thus it is our sad duty before God to deal harshly with evil, which means dealing severely with people who are evil, 
Gideon was doing exactly that. With the Lord God's full agreement, and it is something that should still be happening today, and especially as it concerns his reborn state of Israel and those who would take it from his people. Well, since the 300 elite troops of Gideon didn't have the usual retinue of some women and children bringing up the rear with supplies and food, they'd have to forage as they tracked down the remnants of the Midianite invaders. They stopped at a town called Sukkot and they asked for food as they were tired and famished. And Gideon explained what they were doing that the leaders of Sukkot declined to help. They wouldn't even give them the customary and required Middle Eastern hospitality of a meal and rest. That the residents of Sukkot were Israelites made this offense all the worse. And Gideon would see to it later that this offense wasn't forgotten. Here's the picture that we need to get from this so we can understand the condition of Israel at this time. Those three Israelite tribes residing on the east side of the Jordan had taken another step away from their former unity with their brethren who lived on the west side of the Jordan in Canaan. Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh no longer had any sense of brotherhood with the nine and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan and certainly they had no feeling of obligation towards them. They were closer in mindset and allegiance to those children of the east who Gideon was chasing than as family of the pursuers. Thus Gideon said that when he returned there was going to be severe punishment. Exactly what that punishment was to be as explained in verse 7 isn't entirely clear. They may have intended to drag the offenders over thorn bushes like a sled over a threshing floor or perhaps use thorn branches like small whips to tear the flesh off their bodies. The Hebrew word translated here as tear is dosh. It more literally means thresh like in threshing wheat. In any case, an unpleasant fate awaited those unpatriotic Israelites when Gideon had finished off the enemy. Sukkot was located in the tribal territory of Gad. The town of Penuel was about five miles further east of uh, Sukkot. At Penuel, Gideon made the same request. They gave the same answer. Apparently, Penuel had built a watchtower that was well known and important to their survival. Gideon said he'd punish Penuel's treason by destroying that tower. Now, Penuel, by the way, was a well-known place in Hebrew lore because it was there that Jacob had that strange wrestling encounter with a spirit being that donned physical form. Both of these towns in the Transjordan were about 50 miles from the main battle site in the Jezreel Valley. So Gideon's men had reason to be hungry and pretty tired at this point. Now verse 10 explains that the two Midianite leaders remained, uh, who remained uh, were his main interest. Sevah and Zalmunah. Now in Hebrew, Sevah refers to a certain class of sacrifices that are voluntary, usually associated with vow offerings. Zalmunah 
is also Hebrew that means withheld its hospitality. Now, since these leaders were Midianites, they hardly had Hebrew names. All right, and especially not names with those kinds of meanings. Thus, these names are what they became, eventually became called by the Hebrews sometime later and before the editor that compiled the book of Judges had begun his work. Well, these two enemy leaders were at a place called Karkor, a place they must have felt was safe. About 15,000 men of the 135,000 enemy fighters, um, uh, and like Sisera and Deborah's time that slept in Yale's tent under a false sense of security, they remained, and so they thought that they were safe for whatever reason. But Gideon attacked them. They were totally unprepared, unprepared for it. Let's face it. Who would have thought that Gideon would follow them all that distance? But you know something? They probably still didn't realize yet that Gideon had only 300 men. And so the recollection of all that panic but a few days earlier was still with them. It says that Gideon and his men followed this remnant of 15,000 using the route of the nomads. Actually, this isn't a colorful description of the route. It's the formal name of a known desert highway in that era. Huge masses of people can't travel like Lewis and Clark, blazing new trails everywhere they went. They needed established routes, especially beaten down and easily identifiable paths that went by necessary water sources and resupply points where traveling caravans would know where to meet up with them. Well, verses 11 and 12 explain that eventually Gideon and his men caught up to the army and defeated them, and although without doubt they didn't annihilate them all. The two leaders did what leaders did in those days. They fled when they knew they were in trouble. But Gideon soon captured Zebah and Zalmunah and then headed back towards home, stopping for some revenge along the way. We'll talk about that next time.